So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than... We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Epic Executive Director Sam Ori. In September 2019, a major Saudi oil facility was attacked, briefly disrupting global oil supplies and raising benchmark prices. The Saudi government accused Iran of perpetrating the attacks, exacerbating tensions within the Middle East and among the United States and its regional partners. The event and its aftermath underscored the political fragility of the region and the risks it can still pose to oil markets. At the same time, however, the market's rapid recovery demonstrated that the United States and other suppliers were robust enough to compensate for lost Saudi oil production, suggesting that the geopolitical importance of the region could be changing. On November 6th, Epic and the Pearson Institute hosted a conversation on energy geopolitics and their economic implications. The panel featured Bob McNally, the president of the Rapidan Group and a former senior director for international energy at the National Security Council, Suzanne Maloney, senior fellow and deputy director for foreign policy at the Brookings Institution, and Harris Public Policy Professor Ryan Kellogg, an Epic-affiliated scholar who studies the economics of oil markets. The event was moderated by Epic Visiting Fellow in Journalism and reporter from The Atlantic, Robinson Meyer. Let's listen into their conversation. It's my pleasure to moderate tonight's event on oil security and geopolitics, kind of the new international political economy of oil, uh, which is being jointly hosted by uh, both Epic and the Pearson Institute. Um, the news moved pretty fast. In 2019, I, in fact, when we were doing the prep for this panel, had it's not clear, I'm mostly a climate reporter. I had actually, I'll admit, forgotten this event had happened. Uh, it was this year, it was just two months ago or so, um, that Abakek, a major Saudi oil processing facility, was attacked. Uh, these were drone attacks. They were purportedly carried out at uh, Iran's behest or by Iran. They caused significant damage to the facility. Uh, they, briefly cut off, they briefly cut the kingdom's oil production by half. Uh, it was giant news. Future prices left, uh, and for scale, it's about 5% of global oil production. Um, but despite this minimal disruption to supply, uh, market disruption kind of overall was quickly minimal. After there was this initial spike, prices were back below $60 a barrel by the first week of October. Um, tonight, we'll both talk about that, uh, what happened there, whether something like it could happen again, and whether the, that a, a shock could be contained again but also just about the new geopolitical importance of the United States as a producer and about the changing kind of role of the Middle East uh, in all of this. Um, we have a fantastic panel that I'm pleased to welcome. Uh, first, he's the president of the Rapidan Group, which advises a wide range of clients on energy markets, policy, and geopolitics. He's 25 years of both experience in government and industry, um, and he was special assistant to the president uh, on the National Economic Council and 
Director for International Energy on the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration. Please welcome Robert McNally. Uh, she is the Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy and the Energy Security and Climate Initiative. Uh, her research focuses on Iran and on Persian Gulf energy issues, and she was previously at the State Department uh, on the Policy Planning Staff, and before that she was at ExxonMobil. Please welcome Suzanne Maloney. And here, uh, with home field advantage, uh, he's an associate professor at the Harris School of Public Poli Policy. He's a research associate at NBER, and he's a faculty affiliate here at EPIC. Uh, his research focuses on the economics of resource extraction, the transportation sector, other fun issues. Uh, prior to joining academia, he was at BP as an engineer and economic analyst. Please welcome Professor Ryan Kellogg. And with that, I want to turn it over to Bob, who's going to give us some initial thoughts on both the Abacac shock and uh, just the kind of state of global energy markets and oil markets today. Right. So Bob, thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. And I want to thank uh, you, Lindsay, my old friend Sam Ori, and, and the University of Chicago for having me out. This is my first time to your beautiful university, uh, about second or third time to your beautiful city, and we're having a great time. And I'm uh, delighted to be here with my old DC colleague and friend, Suzanne. So great to be with you, and I look forward to the panel discussion. I thought we'd take a second here, and I made some slides. I'm not going to march through all of them. And I want to start at the micro level and talk about September 14th and the attack on the Abcake facility, and then move and put that into a context of broader oil market stability and what it means for economic growth and even environmental protection. OK, that's what I'm going to try and do in seven minutes. Now, as Rob mentioned, uh, from two years, I worked as the president's top domestic and international energy advisor from 2001 to 2003, or as I call it, Enron to Iraq. <laughs> and after 9-11 especially, we became very concerned about threats, terrorist threats to global oil infrastructure. Even though, you know, back then, of course, we were importing a lot more oil, but those who know the oil market know, even if you don't import oil, even if you're independent, your consumers pay the same price at the pump as everybody else. Unless you have higher taxes, you may pay higher taxes, but there's basically one price of oil. So if there's a disruption in a war in the Middle East and oil prices go to $100 a barrel, guess what? Gasoline's going to 450 here, and politicians really don't like that. And so we were very worried about terrorist threats to facilities. And above all, a facility that I think is literally the most valuable piece of real estate on planet Earth. I mean, literally, were you to remove this facility from the planet, you would subtract more from global GDP, is a facility that many people, probably until September 11th, had never heard of, the Abcake Processing Facility. What is the Abcake Processing Facility? When oil comes out of the ground, crude oil, it's very hot. It's under a lot of pressure, and it's got sulfur in it. It's terribly poisonous and toxic. And before you can put that oil in a pipeline to send it to the tankers, to send it to the refineries, you have to what we call stabilize it. And so a stabilization plant has big spheroids, big balls. And you put the oil in the ball, and it naturally comes down to atmospheric pressure. Then it has these stills, these columns, 
and you boil the oil and you get rid of the sulfur that way. And you have to do that so you can then send it out to the world. Abcake is the world's largest processing facility. It has a capacity of about 7 million barrels a day. It was running about 5 million barrels a day when it was hit. If the oil market is a sort of a, like a circulation system in the human body, Abcake is its heart because it controls not just half of Saudi production, we're going to talk about it in a second, why Saudi Arabia in particular is so important, but it controls much of the spare capacity, uh, much of the quickly producible oil uh, that were there to be disruptions, Saudi Arabia could bring on. And so a disruption to that single plant of about a mile and a half square, had it succeeded or had it succeeded in causing long-lasting damage, I believe would have sent oil prices into that. We'd be sitting here at well over $100 a barrel and probably going into a recession. Now, I have a little bit of an abcake obsession. Uh, I, uh, uh, when I was in the White House, I was obsessed about it. I made sure everybody understood uh, the importance of that facility. Al-Qaeda attacked it in February 2006 with vehicles. Fortunately, it was unsuccessful. But folks who've known me for a long time, and my colleague Leslie Hayward is here, and they know Bob kind of, when we start talking about wars in the Persian Gulf, there goes Bob talking about something called abcake again. Yep, yep, yep. In May, when President Trump decided to put maximum economic pressure on Iran by zeroing out their exports, we knew that Iran was going to be stepping up the attacks in the oil system. And we did a big report. And this is shameless propaganda from my company here. Back in May, we wrote a bullet saying, watch abcake, really important, most important planet uh, facility on the earth. If Iran really wants to send a message, they'll hit abcake. And we did a big study in June, uh, in, July, in June and July, and we had an abcake wildcard scenario. So that's my shameless uh, plug for that. And then on September 14th, they hit it. Why is abcake important? When Iran was subjected to maximum economic pressure, they wanted to raise the stakes. The first thing they did is they said, okay, so you're telling me we can't export oil. We don't like that. So here's what we're going to do. The first thing we're going to do is show you that we can block the exits from the Persian Gulf. There's the Persian Gulf. There's the Strait of Hormuz. About 18 million barrels a day, 30% of traded oil goes through that strait, the most important chokehold in the world. But there's two ways you can get oil outside the Persian Gulf. One is what we call the East-West Pipeline. And the other is this little pipeline here in UAE called the Habshan Fujera or the Fujera pipeline. The first thing Iran did is to show us that they could block the exits. The first attacks were off Fujera and then they hit the east-west pipeline. Then they started sinking ships and attacking ships right in the strait, including a Japanese ship while the Japanese prime minister was in Iran. That takes guts. And then finally they attacked the beating heart of the global system uh, a abcake facility. Now, as Rob mentioned, when they attacked it on Saturday and we didn't know how bad the damage was, when the trading markets for oil opened on Sunday, we had the largest spike ever for crude oil prices. And we were getting ready for much worse. Only after a couple of days when we got good satellite imagery, did we, I'm just trying to see if we have that, oh, I took that satellite imagery out. Only when we had the satellite imagery, did we realize that, Iran, in my view, and Suzanne, I look forward to your thoughts on this, but in our interpretation, Iran, which we are very sure perpetrated these attacks, chose to inflict light damage. It just punctured holes in seven of the 11 spheroids, it did not destroy them. The explosive was not big enough. And it, of the 18 stabilization columns, it destroyed about three or four. So Saudi Arabia was able to quickly restore production. 
So how do we think about something like that? Why would you? I was explaining it earlier, and perhaps this is a bit indelicate, but this is what this is like. Imagine you come downstairs into your apartment in the morning, and you look on your breakfast table. The first thing you notice is your, your toaster and your, and your TV is gone. And then you look on the table, and there's a picture of your kids walking to school with a handwritten note from some guy who tells you, guess what, I was in your apartment last night. I came in last night, I took the toaster, and I took the TV. And by the way, you have beautiful children. And uh, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to come back in your house, and I'm going to take a lot more next time. You'd be terrified if that happened to you. And that's exactly what they, why they did that to the Saudis. I don't think Iran wants to send oil prices up to $150 a barrel, or kill Americans, or kill anybody. And all these attacks that they did, they killed nobody. OK, why does this matter again? I want to bring this to the broader market. I want to use another metaphor. We can get into the economics, if you like, later. But I like to use this metaphor. If you look at the history of the oil market and oil price volatility, and remember now, oil is, and for the foreseeable future, will remain the lifeblood of civilization. We're eventually going to get into hydrogen or electric cars or something else, but for the time being, it's all about oil. And oil is prone to boom-bust price spikes. And the thing that keeps oil prices stable, the most important thing for everybody is having stable oil prices. Whether you're building and operating airplanes, whether you're trying to figure out what kind of a battery electric car to, 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 to build and sell, what we all crave is stability in oil prices. But naturally, they're prone to boom and bust cycles. And what has historically kept oil prices relatively stable is what we, have a, what we call a swing producer. There were three in history. I'm going through a lot of history real fast. Rockefeller in the late 1800s, the Texas Railroad Commission from 1932 to 1972, and then there was OPEC. But in recent years, we haven't had an effective swing producer. What does a swing producer do? A swing producer gets out there and is willing to either increase or decrease production really fast in order to keep prices stable, even if it means surrendering market share. Okay, normally, oil companies, they produce every barrel. You invest all that capital, you produce. But a swing producer is sort of like, I call it a fire department. It's the fire department. And what is the job of a fire department? The fire department, it provides a public good. The role of the fire department is to come out and put out a small fire before it becomes a big fire. And the oil market is like a wooden city. Small fires, meaning fundamental imbalances in supply and demand, can quickly turn into uh, conflagrations of oil price instability if they're not extinguished quickly. And so think of the swing producer as the fire brigade. If you're walking down the street and you're, in the, you're living in Wooden Town and you see a small structure fire, you call up the fire department, you say, I see a small structure fire. You expect the bells, the whistles, they're going to come and put the fire out before the whole city burns down. That's the job. And that's the job what Rockefeller did, that's what the Texas Railroad Commission did, and that's what OPEC used to do. But we haven't had an effective swing producer re uh, recently. Another thing a swing producer does is it has a lot of extra oil supplies, so when you have an abcake or something like that, you can bring it on. So the real frightening thing about abcake is that it hit, if you will, the engine of the fire truck that we rely on to try and keep oil prices stable. And again, I want to end with this point, uh, and I'll just, I'll just make this point on this chart here. Uh, bear with me, but I, it turns out that... Um, uh, this chart's a little busy, but when I explain it, I think it'll help illustrate some of the concepts we're talking about. I built this chart. I was asked to testify in the Senate. Um, and it turns out when the Senate is interested in just learning something and not, not posturing and so forth, they ask you to come in without the press, and I, I, brief, I brief this chart. So this line here, this blue line, is spare production capacity as a percent of total oil market demand. demand. And we're looking at the 1950s. Consider that in the 1950s, of the swing producer, which was te were Texas officials, 
they shut in one-third of global crude oil production capacity. Just sitting there on the ground to keep oil prices stable. There's the price of oil. Look how effective they were. These bars here were disruptions. That bar right there, that big jump up to almost 10%, was the largest disruption in history. It was the Suez crisis in percentage terms. It didn't lead to an oil price strike because we had all this extra oil in Texas in the Middle East that was safe. So when you have a lot of extra spare capacity, even if you have a war or, or, a, or a, a disruption, you can bring on extra oil. The problem, folks, is we live, we live here. In the current environment, Saudi's spare capacity, which is really all that's left, is very small. And Abcate controls a lot of it. And so even a small or temporary disruption here can cause the oil price uh, to rise. So again, I want to leave you with this one idea that Abcake sort of uh, illustrates the importance of. The most important question, I think, for global economic stability, for the success of our efforts to design sound environmental policies, sound economic policies, for consumers to know what kind of cars to buy, et cetera, and so forth, for really economic stability itself, is whether we will have an effective swing producer. And that requires having a country or companies that are willing to play that swing producer role and that can be kept safe from geopolitical risk. On that happy note, I want to thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing from my parents and your questions, your, my colleagues and your, and your questions. Thanks. <laughs> nice revelation at the end of the talk. All right. <laughs> my uh, I was on NPR yesterday, and at the end, and they bring you in this morning edition, they bring you in at 5 a.m., uh, and it went well, and at the end, they were like, they, they were complimentary, the host, whatever, it doesn't matter, and I was like, yeah, I was, hadn't told my parents yet, and they were like, <laughs> were you nervous? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I wasn't nervous at all, I just didn't tell my parents before I was on the radio, so anyway, it's nice that, you know, you invited your parents here. Yeah, they're here. Um, <laughs> Suzanne, I want to talk about... I'm aging rapidly <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> Suzanne, I, I want to talk about the American response to the Avocag. So, uh, in that, as far as we know, there didn't really to be one, at least in a military sense. Uh, first of all, is that understanding correct? And second, does that match with how, you know, kind of the long history of American involvement with Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East around the oil market specifically? It's a great question, and thank you um, to Epic, uh, to having us here today, to Lindsay for doing all the organization to get us here and to get you here. Um, at, at, I think a really timely moment, not simply because we are now uh, just with a little bit of enough distance from the events of September that I think we can begin to draw some conclusions both about the behavior and the policies of the various states in the region, but also, of course, about American policy. I'd also note, um, just because this is my theme this week, that we are, of course, this week at the mark of the 40th anniversary of the seizure of the American embassy in Tehran happened 40 years ago on Monday. Uh, and so it was just at this moment that you had, uh, 40 years ago, that you had a, a special coordinating committee being assembled in the White House to deal with what they were beginning to realize wasn't just a sort of momentary blip, wasn't just another uh, disruption at the embassy, which had happened previously in the early uh, weeks of the revolution in Iran, which actually began in February of 79 but something that would turn out to be a protracted crisis and in many ways something that really transformed the nature of American policy toward the Middle East. And we've been dealing with the, the kind of legacy and fallout from that episode. And I think in many ways we can see echoed in the way that the, the standoff is being played out today, some of the same developments, some of the same constraints, some of the same 
headaches on both sides that we saw back in 79. Um, in the sense that the Iranians then as now know how to make really good use of a crisis, of a provocation, which is I think exactly as Bob suggested, what we've seen over the course of the past couple of months in terms of this series of calculated escalatory measures targeted against oil infrastructure and transportation mechanisms, but also calculated in such a way to avoid civilian casualties, massive environmental damage, and to at least minimize the prospects of an American retaliation. The other parallel that I think we see between today and 1979, the same moment in 1979, is a sort of frustration of the American government about what exactly to do. And there are books to be written, including um, by someone who I know is here, uh, Professor Marvin Zonis, about what happened in 79, and particularly about the way it played out within the US, within the Carter administration, with these deep divides about how hard to press uh, on tr freeing the hostage crisis, freeing the hostages, whether in fact military force was, was necessary and useful or whether economic sanctions could in fact produce the kind of pressure that would persuade the Iranians that it was no longer in their interest to hold 52 Americans who were ultimately only freed in January of 1981. And we see that again today, I think, and it's magnified and it's uh, transformed by a couple of uh, developments that have happened over the course of the past 40 years. There's still this debate. How do we respond? How do we handle Iran? The special coordinating committee that was assembled in, in November of 79, uh, the memos chronicle exactly how they decided to approach this problem, both pressure and persuasion. You re may remember this more recently as described in dealing with Iran as carrot and stick was abandoned by the Obama administration. They reverted back to pressure and persuasion. But ultimately, over the past 40 years, we've been sort of trying to balance both force and diplomacy in terms of trying to manage the challenges that are posed by Tehran. But what's happened during that time frame, and what's happened particularly recently, all the changes in global energy markets and the, the production that is now coming out of the United States is now the leading oil exporter in the world. Um, that is a, a sort of phenomenon that was completely different than where we stood in 1979. But also, of course, in 79, we had no real significant military presence in the Middle East. We had begun to assume the role of guarantor of security in the Persian Gulf after the British withdrew in the late 1960s. But we had not as yet contemplated the kind of presence that we have seen evolve over the course of those decades, but particularly in the post 9-11 period. And what Can I just ask, do you mean that in the whole region, kind of US as guarantor in the Persian Gulf and beyond? Because I think there are ideas about, I mean, there's the classic, if you're writing a history of the geopolitics of oil, right, you have to start with FDR visiting Saudi Arabia during the Second World War. So how, what, just what, what changes in 79? In, well, like, in, yeah. in, the, the change is the articulation of the Carter Doctrine. Yeah. And it was provoked not just by the Iranian Revolution, but of course by the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the sense for the first time that it was in the vital interest of the United States to commit publicly to defend the territorial integrity of the Persian Gulf states from external invasion, but with the implicit understanding, and as we saw take place in 1991, that that wasn't just external from the Soviet Union, but it was, in fact, a commitment to try to preserve the free flow of oil even when that uh, flow was threatened or targeted by states within the region. And so the United States got involved 
in the 1980s when uh, the war between Iran and Iraq began to target civilian shipping and became, uh, the United States took on the, the, the role of trying to protect some of that shipping and actually engaged in hostilities with the Iranians uh, that were quite consequential in terms of the Iranians' decision to eventually settle for a ceasefire in that war in 1988. Uh, it, the United States played that role again in 1991 by assembling a global coalition to try to evict Saddam Hussein from Kuwait and try to ensure that he wouldn't move into Saudi Arabia as many at the time feared. Yeah. And of course, again, after 9-11 after with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think we have now seen the assemblage of massive military presence in the region, a number of bases sprinkled across the region, military bases, but also the backlash here at home to the financial and human toll of those wars that has resulted in a, 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 a political mood that is not distinct to President Trump, that is not distinct to the kind of progressive left of the Democratic Party that we hear out on the campaign trail, but is in fact shared across the political spectrum and now has become part of the Washington establishment uh, uh, approach to the Middle East, which is, it's not our problem. We are not going to go to war for oil. President Trump made clear in, in July when the Iranians shot down a drone that he, he live tweeted his decision to call off a retaliatory strike uh, out of the concern for what would have been estimated about 100 ca Iranian casualties targeting clearly um, you know, military facilities that were somehow involved with that uh, downing of the drone. And then again in September, the decision yeah. not to take any significant military action in response to the, the attack on Abqaiq, there were reportedly cyber uh, attacks it may have been launched against Iran in the aftermath, but they were marginal, they were inconsequential, they don't appear to have had any lasting impact. But I think the lasting impact we're seeing is this clear signaling to the region that we've come to a different moment in Washington, and that that is not just a kind of establishment position, but it's something that has, in fact, a kind of bottom-up sort of uh, dynamic in yeah. the sense that it reflects the political base of both the Democratic and party and at least the Republican party as exemplified by President Trump who are saying no more wars in the Middle East. Ryan, are, I want to bring you in. Are you as pessimistic about Bob, at, about the role of Abacake in kind of both global oil markets and uh, just, you know, the kind of functioning of the global oil machine, right? Like, is this, in, in your mind, would we have seen, for instance, three-digit oil prices had they not been able to repair the, the facility as quickly as they were? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, yeah. like, put ourselves in a world where you take five to six million barrels a day yeah. off, off, the, off the market. Like, this is an, ex it's an expensive piece of real estate. I wasn't quite sure whether, you know, University of Chicago or Abcake is number <laughs> one, but I'm happy to be number two. And, but, you know, well, they're different. Yeah. This yeah. is different pots of money. Right? Yeah. There's a lot to be made about sort of shale, which to some extent is true. Sort of the rise of shale in the U.S. Shale is able to shale investment and growth in shale production is able to respond much more quickly to price shocks than conventional U.S. production has been in the past. Or say, especially something like say. The pre-shale, where was the frontier in U.S. oil and gas production? It was, you know, 
way off Arctic offshore, deep water Gulf of Mexico. Lots of promise there, lots of reserves if you're interested in increasing US oil production. The problem is if you want to start up a new deep water offshore Gulf project, you know, start now and you'll see oil like five years from now, like at best. Shale can respond much more quickly than that, which is good, but there's limits to that. And what makes shale, and I agree with Bob here, not a swing producer, is that it's not a light switch. In the US or in you know, North America, Europe, lots of places, we don't just sort of sit around on spare capacity in the same way that, say, Saudi Aramco does. It's, it's, so and without that, like in order to get more oil online, you got to drill more wells. You got to complete more wells. You got to frack more wells. We're talking, you know, within a year or two, yeah, you can yeah. bring on a couple, more, couple million barrels. But that's the year or two where you've lost five million barrels off the market. And there's not much you can do about it. So in your mind, I mean, has American policy kind of adjusted to a changed state? And this is really for anyone. Let's yeah. pose it to Bob first. Let's say, has American policy you know, kind of anticipated this change in how global oil mar markets might work and withdrawn from the Carter Doctrine before that is actually a physical kind of financial capability that we may actually have. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, and to draw out what Suzanne was saying, no, I think, um, I think we've lost sight of our vulnerability on oil because we're blinded by this achieving uh, you know, becoming a net exporter. Like we're not as dependent as, as we were anymore. If you step back and think, and realize up until about eight o'clock in the morning, uh, Pearl Harbor time on December 7th, 1941, up until that precise moment, this country was very isolationist and there was no broad support for projecting American power, economic, political, military around the world. By noon, that became the new normal. And it was so for about 70 years. But you have to ask yourself, what motivates this country to project power around the world, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe? It used to be the Soviet Union, which is now a matter of history. Uh, and then there was terrorism, but we killed Osama bin Laden and haven't enjoyed the Afghan war, et cetera. And the last rationale, arguably, I think it brought broad-based public support for a presence in the Middle East was, going back to the energy turmoil of the 1970s, is our energy dependence on that region. And so that with the shale revolution has gone away. Now, just one final point. That Sunday morning, excuse me, Sunday evening after the Abcake attack, as the futures market in oil began to trade, somebody briefed President Trump about how important Abcake was and how it would make oil prices go up in the United States if it was damaged. And so he, I think, it was, I think he tweeted or he made a public announcement just minutes before the Asian markets opened saying, we've got this, we've got the strategic reserve in the United States, I'm ready to use it. So he had a quick education that weekend uh, by the energy experts there. But in general, I think we are sort of complacent now about our ongoing vulnerability to oil supply disruptions in the Middle East because of our uh, shale supply revolution. Susan, do you think we have retained like the memory of some of the this vulnerability to oil in that even as there was this American withdrawal uh, in Syria and this this betrayal of the Kurds, right? The the one the one piece of information that the president kept returning to, at least in his Twitter feed, was that we have the oil. Like, don't worry, we have the oil. Which, aside from being uh, logistically baffling, and uh, imperialist to say the least, um, 
would be uh, like we've retained that like he seems to have retained this memory even as there was this physical withdrawal so what what's happening there I think this is very much a function of the, shall we say, mercurial nature of President Trump. Um, he has for a very long time inveighed against American military engagement in the Middle East. This isn't sort of newfound for him. Um, he's been a critic, he, maybe not since the initial phase of the Iraq war, but certainly um, more recently, specifically around the cost of these wars. He's talked about six, seven, eight, depending on the speech trillion dollars uh, it essentially wasted in his view yeah. on, on these military engagements in the Middle East. And that's, a, 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 I think, a point that really does resonate across the political spectrum with Americans who, who feel as though they're suffering, um, who feel e income inequality more acutely than they perhaps did in previous generations, all the things that you all know about here. Um, and so that's something that he's been quite consistent about, and uh, I expect him to continue to be consistent. And yet he's also talked about why we should have taken the oil in Iraq and how we're going to take the oil in Syria, which is so deeply offensive and so incredibly problematic to everything that we might be trying to do in the Middle East in terms of trying to advance peace and security there. To the extent that we are perceived as a result of all kinds of historic engagement, including of course, the American role in the coup in 1953 in Iran um, with essentially trying to steal the resources of the region and particularly trying to steal the most valuable resource of, of oil in the region. Um, we are, it discredits everything else that we have tried to do. And the reality is that, you know, at least in my experience, American companies don't want the U.S. government going about trying to secure oil resources for them. They're pretty good at doing it on their own. They know how to do business in this part of the world. They've been doing business in this part of the world for more than 100 years. And they are interested in doing business on the basis of mutual benefit rather than on the basis of some kind of imperialist uh, throwback dream of President Trump. So, you know, I don't know if this is a hangover that afflicts the entire government. I think it's much more about Trump's own um, somewhat unique view of the world. Um, I want to... <laughs> Politely. <laughs> let's just, let's quickly, uh, do you see, you know, U.S. policy has changed in the Middle East, as we were just discussing about. Uh, have, have, is that in reaction to a material change in U.S. interests? Or is this a reaction more to this exhaustion with, with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq with our kind of long-term involvement there? I think it's a combination of factors. I think it is the, the kind of perception that we, we don't need the energy, even if that is factually untrue. I think it is a function of the real toll that the wars have taken on ordinary Americans. I think it's also a function of the simple reality that we have, over, particularly in the past 15 to 20 years, begun to equate our influence in the region with uh, the number of troops that we have in the region. And frankly, that was never, in fact, the best barometer or the best, uh, the, the best instrument of American interest in the Middle East. And as I said, when, when the Carter Doctrine was first articulated, when we first began to think about uh, a, a playing a role of security guarantor, at least for the Persian Gulf, 
it was never with a heavy military footprint, simply because none of the parties in the region in 79 and 80 really wanted American bases and American troops there. And I think it, you know, at this point, it's, it's past time for, for a serious conversation, both in academic circles, but also, of course, in policy circles about how we think about our interests and trying to advance them in a way that isn't limited to or isn't primarily reliant on a military footprint. footprint. Um, so, in, oh, yeah, what I was going to say, and then like, like, picking up on sort of the question about like what's actually changed in material interest with regard to energy balance, like, like there's one sense in the way Shale sort of the change this in the U.S. position, the position, position has perfect. changed it, which is like if you go back 10, 15 years. The U.S. was importing something like 10 million barrels today of oil and petroleum products. Just like a huge amount of our consumption was coming from from abroad. Um, that's now changed, and if you sort of look at the data, we're basic. The U.S. is basically balanced net zero. And you know, one way to think about that is to think that oh, and if there is something that happens in the Middle East or wherever, and there's a price shock, and the price goes up by 40 bucks a barrel. We're importing as much as we're exporting. Sure, the price will go up, but should we care? It's not changing the balance of trade or balance of payments at all. But there's at least two ways that that sort of sanguine way of looking at it that completely like obscures the real story. Like one, if you like look under the hood and think about it, oil goes up by 40 bucks. That means the price of gas is going up by a buck. There's 40 gallons, 42 gallons in a barrel. Consumers still see that, um, like you know. Think about it, those of us sitting here in Chicago and Illinois. We're not producing any oil here. This is not what Illinois is about. So like everybody in Chicago all of a sudden is going to be paying a buck more a gallon every time they go to the tank. And that, that doesn't go away. There are people who are better off if you're living in West Texas, if you're living in Western North Dakota, North Dakota, you work in the oil fields. It's great. It's you, fantastic for you. But the, the costs and benefits are spread really, really unequally. Do you think a gas price increase or just an energy shock like that would still prompt a recession in the same way that it has historically? Or would you get this crazy regional imbalance? You definitely get some reason, regional imbalance. Like the overall macro effects would, they'd, they'd certainly be different. Yeah. So I mean, it, it is absolutely true that sort of the macro impacts of an oil price shock in the US are going to be muted relative to what it's been in the past. But that doesn't, the fact that we're balanced net imports export doesn't mean that completely goes yeah. away. And it actually sort of feeds a little bit into the in income inequality piece. If you think about like oil, oil goes up, who benefits? It's you know, people who work in the oil industry, the shareholders in the oil industry, mineral interest owners, all these, all these kind of folks. Uh, this is not the set of the population that we're sort of drawing from the middle or left tail of the income distribution. Yeah. Like, like this is actually one industry where even if you have a high school education, you can go out and make six figures. Right. Um, yeah, so like that, uh, that element of it is problematic. And on top of that, you, know, like you think about who our main trade partners are, it's like Europe, China. These are still major oil importing areas. It's like China gets absolutely hammered by a price shock that's going to spill over to us. Has the, has the shale boom changed uh, American interests? Or just has it, like, should we be thinking about American power differently because of the shale boom now? Because I'm, what I'm hearing is not, is that we have a larger oil industry, it kind of provides this maybe macroeconomic slight cushion to some regions in the event of an oil shock. But you know, the United States does not have 
significantly, like its, choice, its menu of choices at any one moment has not significantly changed because of shale. Is that right? Now, I, would, uh, I would say the shale gas, so natural gas boom, which preceded the oil boom, yeah. are both unambiguously good things for U.S. security, even global security, and economic growth. I'll get to, are they a game changer? Because of LNG stuff? Or? Because of LNG. So yeah. what we do is we provide now the world and our allies a safe and reliable source of exports. We now export to these places outside the Persian Gulf. And you, you serve in government, sometimes the symbolic reassurance of that, when you're talking to the Poles and they're terrified of the Russians, even before they take in one LNG tanker, just knowing that America is there, there's this reassuring thing. So from the macroeconomics perspective being more balanced from a security perspective, I think we have to say, and then the gas has enabled us to get out of coal, I'd argue there have been emissions benefits as well. So there are unambiguous, benefits, un yeah. unambiguously good thing. But does it mean, as Suzanne said, that we can sort of ignore or forget or leave the Persian Gulf to go, you know, leave it to itself and not be concerned about stability there? Absolutely not. Going back to how Disruptions there cause price increases everywhere, including here at the pump, and that's what politicians care about. Brian, it looks like you were. No, I'm going to. Okay. Um, so, actually, speaking of emissions, uh, does the does the does the shale? We know there's this effect with gas, where just the the amount of gas suddenly online has basically been responsible for the bulk of any decarbonization the US has done so far, which really isn't decarbonization, it's just emissions cuts, but we'll, we can skip beyond that. Does the, uh, does the does, has shale changed kind of the US's, and Ryan, let's start with you, like menu of policy options when talking about climate change, <coughs> in that we know suddenly we're exporting a lot more oil um, and a lot more just fossil fuels, like we know the president has a lot of authority over trade. We've gotten a nice lesson in that for the past few years. Uh, would, the future, would the next president be able to do anything kind of with those two, with those two pieces? Yeah. So, I mean, there's you know, a broad set of policy options on the table. Like, in some sense, sort of the U.S. is in a position now, like if you look at the fossil fuel export profile, it's exactly what you said. We're now exporting, we're exporting oil for the first time in ages. We're exporting natural gas at, a, at, an, increase, at an increasing rate. Um, there's you know, there is this gas to coal substitution in the U.S. in the U.S. electricity generation mix. Um, there's questions about how much of that coal is actually going to going to be ex going to be exported. Right. So there's a bunch of coal sitting in Wyoming that's you know not getting burned anymore. Is that going to start heading over by rail to the West Coast out of a port and then over to over to China or Japan or Japan or wherever? Um, currently, sort of you know folks in places like Seattle and Portland aren't too keen on this, and that yeah. happens to be where the ports are. So you're seeing you know. Yeah. Not uh, absent that, it would, I would not be terribly surprised to see a lot of that. So I think there's questions about, you know, export terminals are all of a sudden on sort of a, a, lever, a lever that a potential pre presidential administration could think about pulling. Yeah, not just at the local level where they've been so Not far. just at the local level, yeah. exactly. So, you know, all these things need permits, they need environmental permits, right-of-ways, right of all of these things. Yeah. Is there a way, I mean, if you were thinking about some kind of, and I'm just blue skying here, but border carbon adjustment. I don't know whether you could impose that through executive power, but it, it seems like actually amazing because then you get your LNG business maybe survives intact 
or survives relatively strongly, but you kind of emerge as a more powerful entity? Like, is there, is there some way we should be thinking about some kind of border carbon situation? Or, yeah. I mean, I think, I would say the first step to getting towards the point where yeah. we're talking about border, border adjustments is actually sort of having serious carbon policy in, in the United States. So I, border pricing is a really great thing once we have carbon pricing here, yeah. um, which to date, apart from you know, places like California and the Reggie market, which I wouldn't be surprised to see expand to Virginia in the very yeah. near future. So we have sort of local pockets. You know, Canada is, is moving forward in a lot of ways, especially Brit British Columbia. Once you get that sort of carbon pricing right spread, then you get into a place where you can actually talk about border adjustments and actually managing imports so that sort of the emissions we're abating here don't leak outside to other countries. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Bob, so I, I want to kind of get to your overall point about oil volatility. Right. Is your understanding that we're hitting the first free market in oil in a way kind of in the maybe since the 1870s? Well, no, it's the first time since really 1932. So I'm just going to throw up one other slide here because I think it shows the price ranges. So what I've done there, folks, is for the book I did, we created an a oil price series on a monthly frequency going back to 1859. And what I did here was I showed you during different eras how wildly prices uh, were uh, swung during that period. And, and again, I'm a free market guy. I work for President Bush. You see where I come from on the political spectrum. Uh, and you know where Texas comes from. But you, know, you have to ask yourself, you know, why would Texas regulators become the first OPEC? I mean, the Texans were crazy. I mean, in 1932, they, they, three guys met in Austin, Texas, and they set quotas on drillers drill well by well, field by field for 40 years, using bayonets if necessary to enforce it. These are the most free market, oil producing people on earth, put here by God to produce oil and limit government. And they resorted for 40 years to what only can be charitably called Mao Zedongism. So you have to ask yourself, why would those people do that thing? Because we had the free market taste, Rob, from 1911 to 1932. The unpleasant little fact about oil is that when no one is regulating supply, like a switch, light switch, like Ryan said, very attentively, very quickly, you get these swings in prices which are unacceptable to producers, to consumers, to governments, everybody. So we've had to resort to a little communism and accept a little communism to keep the price stable. And the challenge we've had in the last 15 years is that we haven't had an effective swing producer. The oil price almost quintupled from 2003 to 2008. When has the oil price ever gone up anywhere close to that high without a Persian Gulf War in the last 50 years? Answer, never. And the price of oil fell 60% in six months from the summer of 2014 to January of 2015, $145. When has that ever happened without a recession or somebody turning on the spigot? Did that happen then? No. So we are learning to, for the first time since the 20s and the 30s, to deal with what an authentically free market in oil looks like. And, you and that's wild. And you don't see that changing anytime soon. I think it might. Here's the deal. So the, this, this volatility scares the stuffing out of producers. 
And so what happened is Saudi Arabia and Russia got together after oil fell to $26 a barrel in February 2016 and said, enough. And so they have begun to cooperate to resume that swing producer role. Now, I think they will be pretty successful at preventing prices from collapsing. But where I think they will fail in the next 10 years is where Saudi Arabia failed in 2008 and the Texas Railroad Commission failed in 1972, and that is to keep a ceiling on prices. It's much harder in a way to keep a ceiling on prices because you have to have enough investment in wells pumping. And once you run out of new wells, you're done. And so I think they will succeed in the near term here pretty well. But what I would be concerned about is keeping oil prices from going up very strongly again in the future. Um, in just a second, we'll go to audience questions. So you know, we'll have some mics moving around. Start thinking of your question. As always, a question ends in a question mark. Um, I want to, if we've seen, right, that oil volatility and high prices especially can be extremely politically, uh, can induce political volatility. Mm -hmm. And let's be euphemistic. Uh, if we're entering into this era where there's no effective ceiling on prices, this, what do you see as political fallout from that, because that seems like an extremely, uh, th that seems like a fact with extreme salience for geopolitics and extreme salience for domestic politics in a whole bunch of places. So are, are you worried about kind of increased uh, po political volatility from this sudden, this free market in oil for the first time? In almost Absolutely. Uh, the first, the big risk is that we get scared and we resort to things that make the problem worse that we tried in the 1970s. Uh, confiscatory windfall taxes, price controls would be the worst thing, uh, subsidies for uneconomic energies and so forth. Uh, there are smarter things we could be doing, improving data, building storage, maybe looking at sensible tax policy that shields the consumer from crude price volatility by shifting the tax burden to consumption from savings investment at work. So there are smart things to do and there are dumb things to do. Uh, without being too cynical, uh, I'm always concerned that when a crisis happens, sometimes we run to the, the dumb things, and I'd be concerned about that. Half of good policy, I realize, is avoiding bad policy, uh, but there are things we could do to mitigate it. Yeah. Suzanne, do you see hotspots or places where this could, oil price volatility could rear its head? And I know you're a Middle East expert, so. Yeah, I mean, I'll stick to what I know, which is that, you know, if you're sitting in Iran right now, you are looking for ways to get out from under this maximum pressure policy. And the most obvious one, as Bob and Rapidan predicted, is to target energy infrastructure because it has an obvious political cost here. Uh, and the Iranians have been quite transparent about that. They've, in fact, pointed to 79 and the impact of the hostage crisis on Carter's re-election prospects. Said, we've done it before, we can do it again. Um, we, can, we can sandbag an American administration. You know, it was 444 days that the hostages were held. We're now at 442 before the inauguration of another uh, American president, whether that's President Trump's second term or a Democratic rival remains to be seen. But the Iranians have, can do a lot in that amount of time. Yeah. And I think, as Bob suggested, they were, there, it was quite deliberate that, that we didn't see higher levels of destruction, that everything was easily repairable, that there were no civilian casualties. Um, but that doesn't mean they're going to remain restrained because ultimately what they've seen is that escalation works. It drove a lot of diplomacy. It drove the Japanese prime minister to Tehran for a meeting with the Iranian supreme leader, first time in history. 
Uh, and of course, on that very day, the Iranians hit a Japanese-owned uh, small tanker. So it, they've also seen other offers. The French have put forward a $15 billion credit yeah. line. Um, and so the Iranians, both in the region and of course, in terms of their own compliance with the nuclear agreement, are looking for ways to turn up the heat, to use to their own advantage, to generate a sense of diplomatic urgency, and also to force the president's hand because they now recognize he does not want a war in the Middle East under any circumstances. So the best thing that they can do is to get very close to provoking one. Right. Uh, Bob, I want to, one last question, then we'll go to the audience. To me, I mean, if an era where there's a, there's a floor on oil yeah. prices and there's no effective ceiling and volatility has returned. There are many economic reasons and physical reasons and engineering reasons why we'll be burning oil for a long time. Uh, and yet to me, this scenario sounds a lot like pretty effective climate policy. Because if there's one thing you want to do to get American consumers to move to electric vehicles, for instance, it's move the price of gas around a lot. And there's only two, right? There's only two right. years where, Amer where the SUVs haven't eaten up, haven't continued to increase as a share of American private vehicles, and it's basically the, the what, 2007, 2008? Right. So to me, I hear this and I go, well, why, like, are we going to see kind of more climate policy come out of an era of very high oil prices or, or an era where oil prices can spike extremely high? I think you make a very good point. I think folks forget that the first vehicles were electric. Electric vehicles are not new. They're actually the first vehicles in the late 1800 were electric. And as we were starting the modern car market in the early 1900s, about a third of the cars were electric, and a lot of folks thought that was the future. A third were ethanol, alcohol, and a third were gasoline. And the reason that the car industry went with oil, or several reasons, Oil is very superior in some ways, portability, storability, safety, etc. But one of the big reasons was the price had been kept stable. You see there in the, um, here in my little chart here, Mr. Rockefeller kept oil prices pretty stable. In, the, in that period, oil was used as illumination. It was not used in transportation. It was lighting. But then in the, in the 1900s, it began to be used for transportation. And we had found spindle top. We were talking about spindle top earlier. And um, so we had found this gusher in Texas, and the price was stable. And that's one of the reasons folks said, look, we want to base our transportation on this powerful but this stable and ample fuel. The biggest risk, in my view, and it's not from climate policy, it's what will happen to private investment. If the world starts to think that the oil price is going to start gyrating between $143 and $26 a barrel, Forget about policy. It wasn't policy that led us to go from horse and buggies to cars in 1912 and 1913. It was private capital and innovation. And what will happen is it will motivate uh, investment in alternatives to oil and transportation because it's not reliable. And that's why OPEC and oil companies have an interest in stable prices to protect their investments and to keep consumers relying on oil and transportation. So I take your point. It may catalyze climate policy but it will also catalyze a private sector solution to alternatives for oil and transportation. And let me, very super briefly on the climate point, like if, 
if part of the, like, the path to decarbonizing transportation is going to be high gasoline prices, I'd much rather those high gasoline prices come about for policy reasons, i.e. really big gasoline tax that actually properly accounts for the cost of carbon and, everything, and all the other bads that come from gasoline, than sort of high, high oil prices and high costs of supply. If gas is going to be five bucks a gallon, that's coming because oil is 150 bucks. That means you know, we're drilling lots of expensive wells in not particularly promising places, as opposed to actually you know, having, keeping oil supply down, having a robust tax that actually disincentivizes use of in other words, internal bad, combustion. Like the bad part of having volatility as climate policy is that then you yeah. just get all the yeah, you, you, you actually you actually have real costs of high production as opposed yeah. to if you have a tax, particularly if you design the tax well in a way that can actually mitigate a lot of the volatility. Yeah, you're getting a couple of wins at once. Excellent. Thank thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu.